BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This week on Weather Geeks, astrophysicist Dr. Paul Sutter joins us. Paul is an agent to the stars, passionately interacting with the public and science outreach. He is the host of the Ask a Spaceman podcast, where he answers space questions posted on social media. And today we get to ask him questions with topics ranging from the cosmos to communicating the complicated. It is sure to be an entertaining and engaging and educational podcast. So let's dive right in. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And Paul, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, wow, no pressure at all to deliver yeah, on no, no. all the mysteries of the universe. Yeah, we 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 set you up nicely here. And our, our listeners on Weather Geeks, we enjoy um, poking and prodding throughout the world of science. So it's really an honor to have you on the show. Oh, I love it. That's that's the name of my game is really just sharing what I know and what I love about the universe with anyone who will listen and most people who won't. Well, and I, I we were talking before we came on and I know you're uh, somewhere in Columbus, uh, Ohio. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your official appointments before we deep dive into the science. Right. So I am an astrophysicist at The Ohio State University, and I also enjoy a shared position with COSI Science Center, which is the big science center here in Columbus, where I serve as the chief scientist. And both of these positions give me a lot of opportunities for research, for teaching, and then also outreach and engagement, crafting local community programs, being out in the media, appearing on wonderful podcasts like this one, uh, just just sharing everything I can about the universe. And we were talking and I know there's a unique connection that both of us have to Cozy and that uh, many Weather Geeks listeners might remember Dr. Catherine Sullivan, former head of NOAA, and you said she has a connection to Cozy. That's right. She was the former president and CEO for a long time. Actually, I grew up in Columbus. I grew up as a kid going to Kosai. And for the later years of me going to Kosai before I moved out, uh, she was the president and CEO of that institution. I've only been able to meet her a couple times, but uh, she did play a large role in the legacy of this institution that now I get to serve in as well. Well, absolutely. And so, I, I, again, I, I will pass along because I do talk to her occasionally that we actually cross paths virtually in our podcast. What uh, I, I want to kind of jump in now just to probe you a little bit on what got you interested in space. I know for many of us in the meteorological community, there's usually some middle school moment or storm. Uh, is that the case for folks on the space side or what's your story? My own personal story starts even before encountering these kinds of subjects in formal schooling. Usually astronomy isn't um, a major aspect of, of even middle school science or high school science. I remember distinctly as a kid being absolutely obsessed with books about space and books about dinosaurs. I would usually read them back to back, back to back and just devouring anything I could. I'm just absolutely fascinated by, by all these exotic 
creatures that inhabited our past and inhabit our universe. And what I found surprising now reflecting back on that is that I never connected that passion, that love of astronomy with the strange, with the exotic, with the ancient, with the far out, with an actual job, with an actual profession. And as I went into high school and began selecting college careers, I was also a big computer geek. And so I went into computer science because that's that was like a thing that people do. And it wasn't until three years into college that I took an astronomy elective just for fun. And I was chatting with the professor and the professor said, well, yeah, there astronomers are a real thing. Physicists are a real thing. You can get a degree in these fields and pursue a career. And a light bulb went off. I remember waking up the next morning just in a flash like, oh, this is what I want to do with my life. And within a week, I had switched majors to physics and I never looked back. And so that's one of the things that I try to communicate to any audience, especially young kids, as if there's something that you love, if there's something that you're curious about, if there's something that you're passionate about, there is a profession somewhere out there or a way for you to incorporate your passion into a career. Yeah, I, I, I have a similar story as well. So I, I really appreciate what you say there. I actually have a question, in, you know, in, in meteorology, people often assume when they find out I'm a meteorologist that I'm on TV somewhere. And, and though I do some TV, I'm the past president of the American Meteorological Society, the AMS. And uh, by our own statistics, only about 8% of meteorologists are actually on TV. So there's a sort of misconception about who meteorologists are. What is the difference uh, in terms of uh, between an astrophysicist and an astronomer, or are there any differences? There are differences, although there is a lot of overlap. So a, a typical astronomer, a historical astronomer, is someone who is obsessed with taking data of the universe. They are trying to design and build fantastically compl complicated instruments. They're worried about uncertainties and measurements and just trying to get that juicy data. An astrophysicist is someone who spins stories around that data. So a physicist in general is someone who tries to understand the way the universe works with mathematics based on data. And when you take that and apply it to stuff in space, you become an astrophysicist. Ah. That said, there are a lot of astrophysicists that work in instrumentation. There are a lot of astronomers that do a lot of theory work. There's a lot of crossover. I actually sit in both the Department of, of Astronomy and a section of the Department of Physics at Ohio State called the Center for Cosmology and Astroparticle Physics. You'll see departments of astronomy and, ast and astrophysics. You'll see them incorporated in physics. You'll see them separate. It's, it's very loose definitions. It's most, mostly about self-identification. Uh, yeah, I, I see. And, I, and I, 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 again, I resonate with that because um, all, although all three of my degrees are in meteorology, I mean, I, I cross over some of my research into climate, atmospheric sciences. So I certainly resonate with that sort of mm -hmm, self-identification. Mm -hmm. Now, this is Weather Geeks, uh, the podcast um, that talks all about weather, climate, and related sciences. 
Um, many weather enthusiasts are actually interested in space too, but I'm, I'm curious whether space peeps are actually interested in the weather. Or, or do you find that there are people that have curiosity about weather? Or are they sort of, now we're weird weather people. We just like space, but you're not as interested in weather. I'm curious. Right. Like, yeah, like there's a hard line a hundred miles up where, you know, if, if you're interested in stuff beyond a hundred miles up, then you're not interested in anything below it. Uh, I'm personally fascinated by weather systems and climate systems. These are fascinatingly complex physical systems that are obviously worthy of their own field of study in research and outreach and communication. I find that a lot of space geeks and space enthusiasts are fascinated by the weather. They are fascinated by climate. They're interested about the relationship between the sun and the earth, how the sun impacts the Earth's atmosphere, how our climate systems develop, how the tilt of the Earth's orbit affects our weather, how the spin of the planet affects our weather. You, you, you can't talk about weather without talking about space at some point. And this topic of space is inclusive of the topic of weather. We talk about weather on planets in the solar system or exoplanets. We talk about solar weather. We talk even about galactic weather. This, uh, galactic, there is let a, me stop you right there because I'm, I was with you until you said galactic weather. What is galactic weather? What does that, what is that composed of? I'm curious. So our galaxy is home to hundreds of billions of stars and a lot more stuff. There are clouds of nebula, of, of gas and dust. The radiation, light of all wavelengths permeates our entire galaxy. There are high energy cosmic rays swirling around from different sources. So when we look at the galaxy as a single physical object, there are sources of heat, there are sinks of heat, there are distribution systems, there are flows of heat and matter in radiation, there are outflows from the galaxy, there is material raining onto the galaxy. You can, and people do, model the galaxy as a complex system of heat transportation, a.k.a. weather. Absolutely. So I was going to say, once you started talking about modeling of heat transfer and dynamics and fluid flow, that it sounded a lot like what we do on the meteorological side of the house. I, I, I have to admit, I, I learned something new today because I didn't realize that the concept of galactic weather was a thing. I'm certainly familiar with uh, weather and meteorology on other planets. In fact, on a, a previous um, version of Weather Geeks, we had uh, uh, mm -hmm. Dr. Tanya Harrison on and she was talking about Mars weather and some other things that we've um, talked about. So, And certainly space weather, uh, the whole interactions between the sun and Earth are very interesting and relevant uh, to society. So really interesting. We're talking with Paul Sutter. Uh, he's an astrophysicist, writer, speaker, producer, and podcast host. And we're going to get into much of what he does throughout the, the next several uh, minutes or so. Tell us about your research. My research focuses mainly on the biggest and oldest stuff in the universe. So I'm a particular kind of physicist called an astrophysicist and a particular kind of astrophysicist known as a cosmologist, as someone who studies the entire universe as a single physical object. So I'm interested in the structure of the universe, the components of the universe, the history of the universe, its earliest moments, its fate, what it's made of, all these great, grand, wonderful, probably impossible to answer questions. Ah, that's, I see. Now, 
kind of blending your worlds a, a bit, are there any celestial events or any ways that you study your particular topical matter, whether, whether here on Earth uh, hinders that or even it's something like the eclipse last year? Um, certainly that was very weather dependent in terms of your ability to view. I'm just curious about what, how weather comes into play in your own research in any oh. ways or does it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So most of astronomy still takes place with giant telescopes on the ground. We put them in really cool places like mountaintops in Hawaii or Chile or deserts in South Africa or Western Australia, but we're still observing the universe from the surface of the earth the same way we've been doing it for thousands of years. And we're doing deep surveys, we're doing extensive surveys, we're doing very powerful surveys, but you know what? If it's a cloudy day, we're not going to collect a lot of data. And Site selection for astronomical observatories is so dependent on predicted weather patterns. We like clear air. We like dry air. We like as wide a window as possible into the wider universe. And this is something that observational astronomers still deal with every single day and every single night is what is the weather going to do? Are there clouds? Are there inversion layers? Is, is the sun especially frenetic today? It will affect observations. It makes observations difficult. It makes data analysis difficult. It makes understanding the universe difficult. But that's the name of the game in astronomy. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And welcome back to Weather Geeks. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with Dr. Paul Sutter, and he's at Ohio State University, and he does a lot of interesting things. I want to pick up on something you ended the last segment with, because I know that I was watching some documentary on television one time, and there, there seems to be a significant astronomy presence or astronomer, astrophysicist presence down in the Atacama Desert region of South America. And from a meteorological or climatological perspective, that's one of the clearest, driest places on the planet. And it's related to cold currents and upwelling and and some of the atmospheric flow uh, in, uh, in the global circulation. So I imagine based on what you said, that that's probably one reason why uh, some of those telescopes are there. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Northern Chile has become over the past few decades a, a hot spot amongst the global astronomical community for cutting edge research because they have tall mountains with dry air and reasonably decent infrastructure for building things and, and building uh, communication channels to get the data out of the mountaintops and, and into universities around the world. And the government of Chile has heavily promoted this facet of their economy. So there are major observatories strung throughout the Atacama region and the Elqui Valley region of northern Chile. And there's more, even more coming online. There might be better spots 
elsewhere in the world in terms of dry, clear air, but there aren't a lot of better spots that are easily accessible. Right. And that's always important. I want to shift gears somewhat and talk about the way you communicate with the public, because you actually are a card carrying scientist, a PhD. And let, let's, I, I literally have a card. Yeah, yes, I, I, I have mine as well. Let's keep it real, though, for a second. A lot of peers in the scientific community and in academia or the ivory tower, as we say, are very smart or very good. They're sort of experts at what they do. We, we work with them every day. Both of us do because we're professors at major universities. But sometimes our peers and aren't necessarily either willing or interested or able to communicate to the public. What are your thoughts on how you communicate? And do you think our peers and your peers uh, do this, do this the way they should be doing it? I mean, because there, I want to dive into this because there are some in the academic community that think, Oh, we're popularizers or you're not as serious of a scientist. If you're talking to the media or the public, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think, I think there are some issues that we need to address from within academia about communicating our work to the public. I think Academics, scientists are in general amazing communicators. These are people who are constantly working in collaborations, writing emails, sharing their work, giving presentations, writing papers. You know, communication is a fundamental aspect of the scientific process. So these are amazing communicators in their jargon, in their field, right. in their area of technical expertise. And, tra- and, and communicating that work to the general public is a matter of translation, of boiling down the mathematics, of, of stripping away the jargon or explaining the jargon and painting this picture to someone who has, doesn't have decades of experience. That's not easy. But then scientists are some of the smartest people in the world, so you'd expect them to be able to do not easy things. I think fundamentally what the issue here is that scientists are not incentivized to communicate with the public. Uh Aha, yes. I think you're going someplace that I've often talked about as well. What do you mean by that? I mean that if you look at what a scientist at a major research university has to do to keep their job going, number one priority is getting grants. Grant money is scarce, has been getting scarcer for the past 30 years. There's a lot of scientists out there. There isn't a lot of money for them. So number one priority is getting grants. Number two priority is writing papers to establish themselves within the field. Then... There's a long gap, and at the bottom of that gap, there's teaching responsibilities. Underneath that let, is— let me, let, me stop, <laughs> let, me, let me stop you right there, because I think a lot of people might be surprised at what you just said. That, um, because when I tell people I'm a professor at a university, for example, the first question that I get is, what do you teach? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And of, of course we do teach at the university, particularly those of us that are you know in the, in the tenure track and that type of thing. But I find that most people are— just not aware of the fact that a vast majority of what professors, at least at a research one type universities do is research, advising their graduate students, uh, grant writing, et cetera. So expand on that, because I think people need to understand that, that we're not in a classroom eight hours a day. Yeah, exactly. I, I remember I was a grad student in my PhD in physics from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And while I was there, the state implemented budget cuts Uh, And put the faculty on furlough, which is like a forced unpaid vacation 
for a week or one day a week for a month or something like that. And I remember my advisor went to his classes that he was teaching and the students said, well, are you going to keep teaching? He said, yes, I'm going to keep teaching. And they're like, oh, but you're on furlough. You're not paid. And he, and he sat down with them and he worked out. He said, what fraction of my day do you think I devote to teaching or like my fraction of my week? And he sat down and he went through all his other responsibilities, writing papers, advising grad students, serving on committees, uh, you know, doing all the stuff. And then teaching was a portion of that, but just a small portion. So he said, yeah, all that other stuff still has to get done. And so I might as well also show up to teach. Yeah. And I think where you were going with this is with the incentivized uh, incentives to uh, do communication and outreach is that those metrics such as writing papers, grant dollars and teaching evaluations, those things are sort of valued in that space. And so an expert like yourself in astrophysics or me in weather or climate, there's no necessarily written in incentive to go talk to CNN or the Weather Channel or to speak to the media or go and speak to the Rotary Club. People like us do it because we know the value and importance of it, but there's no incentive to do it, which brings me to your podcast, Ask a Spaceman. How did that evolve and, and why do you do it? Yeah, Ask a Spaceman was just a fun, fun experiment that I started about three and a half years ago when I was a postdoc, a postdoctoral researcher. I didn't have a permanent position yet. And I had always been interested in outreach. I had always been intrigued by it. I love talking to classrooms, doing little events. And I'd been listening to podcasts for basically forever, ever since podcasts were a thing. And it's one of those things that I'd always had this idea bouncing around. And then finally, one day I said, you know, I'm, I'm actually going to do it. I'm actually going to do it. And I'm going to just run with it and see where it goes. And it's a very simple concept. I invite people to ask me questions on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, email, whatever. And I will take questions, collect them, and I will answer them on the show. And that way I don't have to come up with topics. My audience comes up to with topics. That way I'm always responding to what the audience wants. And the show was a huge success. The podcast blew up very, very quickly. I got a lot of very lucky exposure from space.com very early on in the, the days of the podcast that helped it grow. I got connected to major science communicators like Fraser Kane and Pamela Gay in the community who helped promote it and get the word out. And the more the podcast grew, the bigger the audience, the more fun I was having, the more I was interacting with people. And the success of that podcast led to other opportunities, which led to other opportunities. I'm sure you're familiar with this. And, and it just snowballed from there. And the more I was doing outreach, the more I was doing communication, the more fun I was having. And I was exceedingly lucky that I was already well connected to The Ohio State University and connected to COSI and we were able to craft this joint position that gave me the freedom and flexibility to continue doing outreach and communication when that is not the typical track for a university faculty member. Absolutely. So no, kudos to you for being able to sort of sort of bridge the gap there. Uh, I know that you also have an upcoming book, uh, Your Place in the Universe, 
understanding our big messy existence. Tell us about that and why you wrote that book. Yeah, the the book is is hilarious. Uh, well, I think it's hilarious. It, we'll see if reviewers and critics actually find it as hilarious <laughs> as I do. Uh, but the book is just one of these extensions where. I'm growing, I'm doing more outreach, I started writing articles, I got interested in maybe writing a book, I crafted an idea, sent it to a literary agent, the literary agent, Lane Haymont, loved it, he started pushing it, a year later a publisher finally takes it up, and it was a real treat to write the book, and the reason for writing the book was that there are stories happening in our universe and there are stories happening in the history of science that I didn't feel like we're getting a lot of airtime. I didn't feel like we're being told, at least in the way that I saw it. And I wanted to share those stories. I wanted to share the story of the history of our universe, of 13.8 billion years of cosmic expansion. I wanted to share the story of how we've learned that, all the twists and turns and blind alleys of the scientific discovery, that joy of pursuit of learning. And I wove them together into a narrative, and it will be out November 20th of this year. You can go... Here's the plug, pmsutter.com slash book, and there's links to where you can pre-order the book. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And welcome back to the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm speaking with Paul Sutter. And just heard some information in the last segment on where you can find out information on Paul's new book, Your Place in the Universe, Understanding Our Big Messy Existence. Looking forward to that. Make sure you check that out. Paul, before we kind of dive further into some really interesting things that I want to talk to you about, where can people find you on social media? I am available on social media on all the on all the channels as at Paul Matt Sutter, P-A-U-L-M-A-T-T-S-U-T-T-E-R. That's Facebook, that's Twitter, that's Instagram, that's Twitch, uh, that's YouTube, the, the whole deal. Yes. So make sure you're following Paul out there on all those social media outlets as well. Now, this is something we'll have a little fun with this. Like weather, space hits the news headlines quite a bit. I mean, with eclipses, meteor showers, etc. And like weather, the media and the headlines often make people like me in the meteorology world cringe. For example, when we see a tornadic event that was well-worn, but yet the media says it came without warning. Uh, those types of headlines just drive us mad. Are there any space-related headlines that you see that either drive you mad or are just scientifically inaccurate? Yeah, basically all of them. <laughs> That's right. I, I, yeah. I think I think what gets me, and this is something, this is a very fine line that I try to walk in my own podcast. I have my own radio show, Space Radio, uh, that airs locally in Columbus and also has a podcast. And, and this is a line I try to walk where science is any science is an evolving thing. We're constantly learning new things about the universe and we're constantly 
especially in the early days of, of a field of research, there's always contradictory information. There, there's studies that go back and forth. There's disagreeing theorists. It's a mess. And it's only over the slow evolution of time that we separate the wheat from the chaff and we come up with something that we actually call a rigorous scientific theory. And so I'm all about sharing that journey because the journey is science. Science isn't results. Science isn't the facts. Science is the journey of discovery itself. So I'm all about that. But I have a really hard time when journalists, headlines, reporters, YouTube personalities, whoever, take the latest study that's probably flawed, incomplete, inconclusive, and trump it up as the ultimate answer to life, the universe, and everything. And then three weeks later, the next study comes out that is contradictory or wrong or incomplete, inconclusive, and then that's the ultimate answer to life, the universe, and everything. Paul, how do we... Yeah, this is something we deal with in the meteorological and climate world as well. This whole... What I call one-study mania. Mm. Uh, You know, you and I understand how the peer review literature works and the process of peer review and vetting and... The fact that one study comes out and says one thing and two studies may come out and say another thing. How, and this is a tough question. You may not have the answer, but how do we, we're in a world of social media now, and I want to get to your thoughts on that as well. But how do we get people to understand and consume science in the way we as scientists consume it rather than consume it in a headline or the latest tweet mode? Right. And I think the answer to that is to break down the walls between scientists and non-scientists. The traditional path, the traditional path that operated for decades was if a scientist at a university had some interesting result, they would submit that result to the university press office. The press office would decide if it's if it's worthy enough to push out there. They would put their tweaks, they'd spin, they, they'd make some release, they would send it to journalists. Journalists would add their own spin, their own hype, their own tweaks, and that this was how scientists communicated with the public. And then every once in a while, a scientist would write a book or something and talk directly to the public. I think those walls are crumbling where there still is a place for traditional media. Absolutely. And there still is a place for university press offices, but there's nothing stopping any scientist in any discipline from opening up a Twitter account or a Facebook account or an Instagram account or a YouTube channel or whatever, and talking directly one-on-one with people in the public and sharing their journey of discovery, sharing their interpretation of results, sharing how they do science. And I think it's through that slow process that the the game of education will change that the way that science society views science and scientists is through these fine grained interactions through these micro interactions in as they get a view into the scientific world. I think that's the ultimate thing. And and I'm on a mission to encourage other scientists that even though you're not incentivized by it, even though it's not going to help you get a grant, even though it's not going to help you write papers or get tenure, you absolutely have to communicate with the public because that is the only way to ensure the long-term survivability of science as a profession. And I completely agree with you, which is why I 
do things like the Weather Geeks podcast, mm-hmm. the, the television mm-hmm. show before that, and I even contribute the Forbes. So I, I, I kind of buy into exactly what you're saying. We've got preaching to the I've choir. Often, yeah, I've often said that if um, if we are those of us in the ivory tower or in academia are not out there uh, communicating the accurate science, uh, those with agendas or with inaccurate information are happy to fill the gap that, that we are leaving behind or the vacuum, if I should uh, put it in space terms. So there you speak. go, vacuum is very important. Uh, yes. So speaking speaking of of social media though, which is one of the, the mechanisms that you mentioned that scientists can sort of bridge the gap. What what is your experience though? Like, I mean, I mean, of course, there are trollers out there. How do you deal with trollers or people that you know offer these sort of theories that aren't right or inaccurate or based on their ideology or opinion? Uh, I'm sure you deal with them. We deal with them in the weather and climate world. How do you deal with them? My personal strategy to dealing with with people who troll, with people who put out false information, like there's major, there's major YouTube channels that are 100% garbage. That, that what, are, what are some of the, what are some, because I can tell you a host of the, the garbage weather and climate stuff that's out there. Just give the Weather Geeks listeners a sense of what are some of the just really bad science stuff out there on social media in your field that you can think of, just the sort of the top two. <laughs> I would say there, there's a lot of alternate theories of cosmology that that don't stand on any physical grounds whatsoever. There's a lot of mixing of science and sci-fi, and I have absolutely no problems with science fiction. I've consulted on several TV and film science fiction projects. Uh, but sometimes, a lot of times, science fiction, speculative fiction is presented as rigorous science and mixed together with rigorous science. There's a lot of, I don't want to say overhype because I like excitement about science, but when there's new results to, to push it to the extremes of what it might mean beyond the bounds of what we know in science. And so it's almost like taking the core science and stretching it too far. Yes. I, 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 and I, we, we see that as well in, in the weather world, for example, with things like chemtrails. People say mm-hmm. that the, the, you know, the, the trails coming out of airplanes are some kind of government conspiracy and it's just physics. So one thing that, you know, comes to mind and I deal with this as well. Do you deal with policymakers uh, in, in your role? And, and if so, why do you think that's important? I personally don't. I have a lot of colleagues that do, but I view my fundamental mission as more long-term, more personal, and more about the people of just, I'm just here to share and explain how the universe works and explore it with my audiences. I have a lot of trust that and yes, there are issues. There are a lot of issues that require scientific input in terms of policy. There's a lot of policies that impact the science as a discipline. I have a certain luxury that meteorologists don't, which is the questions that we're trying to answer in, say, Big Bang cosmology basically don't matter for us as a civilization or an economy on the planet. You know, if the universe turns out to be 14.8 billion years old instead of 13.8 billion years, it's not really going to change anything. So that gives me a little bit of freedom of I can just sit here and explain how we know that the universe is 13.8 billion years and it's not going to affect any short-term policy decisions. Well, but well, okay, well let me sorry, let me follow up on that then because I know the value of what you're doing and the science of why we need to do that 
and understanding. But if you're in the environment we're in now and some of the perspectives towards science and scientific research and some feeling that science is under attack, how would you respond to someone that would say, well, if you just said that, then why should we be funding it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and I counter, you know, science is under attack. Science has always been under attack ever since there's been a science. So that's not a new thing. And yes. instead, what I tried to do is, yes, the answers that most scientists are trying to search for don't matter in terms of pragmatic value. There are a lot of questions that scientists are trying to answer that do, and that's great, but that's not like the fundamental reason why I do science or a lot of scientists do science. Instead, I I try to share the passion that I have, the fundamental curiosity that I have about the universe, and I try to grow and spark that curiosity in others recognizing that this is a part of humanity. This is a part of us. Scientists are just people who are really curious about the way the universe worked and have developed a really, really awesome method for satisfying that curiosity. So if you're curious, and you probably are because you're a human being, we can share in this joy of discovery, this journey of curiosity together, and that is the value. That is the value of science. Absolutely. And, you know, I often say, yeah, and of course, I do work in meteorology and climate where there is a bit more of an obvious link that people can see to their lives and society. But what I also remind people about is that sometimes scientific research is not necessarily about the immediate end game. A lot of the things that you're benefiting from right now, uh, whether it be a cell phone or GPS in your car or a new heart procedure in, uh, in the hospital, A lot of that came from basic research and fundamental science that maybe you couldn't have initially seen the end game. And so I I really try to communicate that to people. I think that's what I hear you saying in addition to this notion of uh, couching it within humanities context. Oh, yeah, exactly. And and there's a reason. at the Ohio State University, I sit in the in the astronomy department and physics department. We're in the College of Arts and Sciences. We're shared the same college. We're viewed as a part of the same human endeavor. But there are a lot of pragmatic benefits to doing science. There are a lot of technological achievements that can be made once we understand how the universe works. And you don't know how or when or where the fundamental research will translate to pragmatic benefits. One example is the development of quantum mechanics. A hundred years ago, Quantum mechanics was a purely theoretical pencil and paper, a small laboratory experiment understood by like a dozen people in the world. And today, quantum mechanics, our understanding of quantum mechanics is responsible for over 25% of the world's economy. Wow. That's a a really good example that I think provides some context for what we're saying. Paul, we're talking with Paul Sutter, and we're we're coming close to a co- close here. But before we do, you you talked earlier about scientists and our tendency in general to use jargon and to sort of be out of touch with perhaps some of the audiences that we're speaking to. Uh, as we as we come to a close, Paul, and I know this is not possible to give um, a perfect equation, but a recipe. But what is Paul Sutter's recipe or? approach for explaining complicated science to the public or someone in the media? What, what are the sort of tactics and techniques that you use? Uh, yeah. So number one, 
I am really honestly fascinated by all of this, and I am not going to hide that fascination or enthusiasm. So that's going to be up front. Number two is I don't want to hide from the mathematics or the jargon because that's what underlies our knowledge. And so I'm going to translate the mathematics and jargon for you. Instead of just trying to skip around a topic because it's too complicated, I'll hold your hand and I'll walk you through it. And it's also a recognition that different modes of communication have have different strengths and weaknesses. On my podcast, I can spend 30 to 60 minutes taking a deep dive into, say, cosmic inflation or the nature of dark energy or how stars die. I know that I can't do that on a tweet. I know that I can't do that on a two minute segment on TV. And so it's about finding that that core nugget. What is the hook? What is the takeaway at the end of this segment or podcast episode or article? What do I want the audience to walk away from knowing? And then it's ensuring that everything I say, everything I do leads to that goal. Right. And I think that's very sound advice. In this last segment or so, uh, as we close with Paul Sutter, what advice would you offer to younger people thinking about being an astrophysicist? I this is a very challenging thing. I actually did a couple of podcast episodes on it. There are basically no jobs in astronomy. There there are faculty positions, but the ratio of PhDs produced to open faculty positions is very, very high. So Almost no PhD astronomers actually get a job in academia, and that's generally true across all scientific disciplines. So I encourage people, if you're curious about the way the universe works, if you're curious about a field of science, absolutely go to college, get that degree, get a bachelor's, advance to master's or a PhD if if you're in the mood for it. Be mindful from the start that there's probably not a long-term career in the cards for you. Even if you're the best possible person in that field, if no university is hiring in your specific area of specialty at the time that you need to get a job, then you're out of luck. And that's just the way it is. Paul, are most of the jobs, so for example, in my field, you certainly can go into academia, but there are certainly jobs in more applied areas too, whether it be television or the National Weather Service or EPA. Uh, Are you saying that in astrophysics, in your field, in the field of astrophysics, it's primarily academic-based jobs? It is primarily academic-based jobs, but I will say that physicists and astronomers have an essentially 0% unemployment rate across any job. People love hiring hard physicists, uh, hard sciences, people who have backgrounds in physics or astronomy or chemistry because of the skills you develop in college and grad school are applicable to so many different areas of industry, of research, of government policy. Those are useful, useful skills. You can still retain your passion for the discipline. You can be an enthusiastic communicator and sharer, a bridge between non-scientists and scientists. You can still serve that passion, even though that's not what how you 
you'll make your living. Right. And I think that's good advice and advice I, I often share as well. Uh, I think many, many young uh, people that I see that come through college, they're passionate about weather or tornadoes or hurricanes. But they don't realize that with the degree they're getting in meteorology, and it sounds like in your field too, you're getting analytical skills, math skills, physics-based skills, problem-solving skills that are applicable in consulting jobs and business and in many other areas. So I think that's great advice. Paul Sutter, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Take care and make sure you check out Paul's new book and also his podcast, Ask a Spaceman. Thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and this has been Weather Geeks. Weather Geeks.